Well, good morning, Gateway family. Great to see you this morning. I want you to find Ephesians chapter 5 in your copy of God's Word, on your Bible app, on your phone there. And as you're finding it, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever had to pause in the middle of something you were doing to evaluate it? Have you ever had to stop in the middle of something you're working on to evaluate it? Perhaps when you were a kid and you were building Legos or building with some type of set, and you get through and you go, did I miss a step? And so you start spending a few minutes flipping back through all the pages, making sure you didn't miss anything in it. Perhaps you're on a sports team and struggling in the game, and so the coach calls a timeout and he brings you all back together to evaluate how you're doing and how the plays are coming together. Perhaps, perhaps it was a school or a work project that you were doing, and you pause in the middle of it to evaluate, have I missed anything? You go back through all your checklists and all your steps to make sure nothing has been overlooked. Or perhaps for those of you who are older who are in the pre-GPS days of driving, as you're going on the trip and you're dealing with those big maps that unfold, some of you know what I'm talking about here, and you have to stop on the side of the road to make sure you're going the right way before you keep going because you want to evaluate before you continue the journey that you're on. We have to pause in the midst of all sorts of things we do, from school and work projects to driving to even our play, to make sure we're headed the right direction. Have you ever done that spiritually, though? Because when we come to Ephesians chapter 5, we have a call to do that very thing, to pause and to evaluate where we are spiritually, to evaluate where we are headed, to evaluate our relationship with the Lord. And this is a good place in Paul's letter to the people of Ephesus and to us for him to call us to pause and take a look at which way we're headed. He's laid us a, founda- a foundation for us in chapters 1 through 3 of all that God has done for us, our identity in Christ, how he's made us new, how he's given us life, how he's given us belonging, and he's changed us. And in chapters 4 through 6, Paul's been applying that for us of how our lives are different because of what God has done for us. How God changes us to where we put off sin and begin to put on Christ's likeness. After showing us all those things and dealing with all these commands related to our speech and our unity and how we treat one another, he pauses this morning in the verses that we're in. Before he tackles the role of the Holy Spirit, before he addresses the issues of how husbands and wives and children relate, before he teaches on spiritual warfare, he pauses in our three verses this morning, and he calls us to evaluate our lives. So before we even get to the text, I want to show you what I want us to see this morning. It's simply this. God calls us to examine our lives to see how his grace is changing us. We see here in our main idea for today that God calls us to examine our lives to see how his grace is changing us. And maybe if you can put that up on the screen for us there. God calls us to examine our lives to see how his grace is changing us. Friends, we have a call from the Lord. We have an invitation from the Creator, from the one who spoke the universe into being, from the great I Am, the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty God has invited us. He is calling to us to pause in the midst of our busyness, to pause from all the activity of all that we're doing, and to stop and look at how His grace is transforming us, how His grace is changing us. Friends, over the last year and a half, as we journeyed through the Gospel of John, and now has been working through Ephesians verse by verse, if there's one theme that we have seen over and over and over again in both books... It's this, that true belief changes us. That if we really believe in Christ, it will make a difference in our life. Not that we'll be perfect far from, but there will be a change that's happening in our lives if we really believe. So in a sense, what we come to this morning in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 17, is Paul saying to us, I've reminded you of your identity in Christ. I've told you now how you should be living by God's grace because of that. So I want you now to stop and think, are you really believing? Are you really embracing your identity? Are you really experiencing God's grace, not just rescuing you from hell, but God's grace transforming you and changing you? 
So if we come to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 this morning, I want you to be looking as we read for this idea of what evidence of grace is there in my life? What evidence of change is there in my life? I think Paul lays out three different things we should be looking for in our lives. So as we read the text this morning, look and see what are the ways we should be seeing God's grace changing us. So can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 17. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. Verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Father, what a treasure it is that you have not hidden yourself from us, but God, you have revealed yourself to us. God, there's no mystery of who you are. There's no mystery of how you want us to live out our identity in Christ. Father, you have made it plain to us, your nature, your character, your plans for our lives. And what I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would give much grace to help us understand your word. To understand these words that are your breath to us, your very words to us. I pray they would come alive and you use it to transform each one of our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And from Ephesians 5, 15 to 17, I want to see that God calls us to examine our lives, to see how his grace is changing us. Let's start with the call to examine our lives. Look back at the first part of verse 15, where Paul says, look carefully then how you walk. It begins with this phrase, look carefully. Now, that's a pretty literal rendering of the original Greek here. I know some of your translations may say, be careful how you walk. But the very first word in the Greek here to stand out is the word look, watch, pay attention to something. And what are we to pay attention to? He says, look very carefully, watch very carefully how you walk. You should know this phrase, walk by now. It's the sixth time we've seen the idea of walking in Ephesians. Walking is a metaphor, an image for us of how we're to live. So what we're seeing here is Paul calling us to say, take time to very carefully examine how you're living, to take a look at your life. Okay, well, that's great, but what does that mean? That's pretty broad. It's just a look at my life. What in the world does that entail? Well, thankfully, he gives us several things we should be looking for in our life. And what brings all those together is ultimately we're we're being called to look for how God's grace is changing us. It's a call to see how, if we really believe, what difference it is making. And he gives us three specific things that we're to see as God's grace changing me in these areas. The three things I want us to see this morning are, is God's grace changing me in how I obey, and how I use my time, and how I seek God's will. Yet in verses 15, 16, and 17, ultimately we're seeing a question of to look in our lives and is God's grace changing me? Is it changing me in how I obey? Is it changing me in how I use time? Is it changing me in how I seek God's will? Because, friends, again, if we have really believed in Christ, if we've really embraced our new identity, it should be changing us, it should be growing us in all these things. Let's look at those one at a time. First of all, is God's grace changing how I obey His commands? Is God's grace changing how I obey what God has commanded to us? Look back at verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Now, if you're thinking, I don't see the word obedience in there, you're right. But it's there in different terminology. Notice what he says as he's talking about looking at how we're to live. We're to live not as unwise, but as wise. In the Bible, the word unwise and fool are used synonymously. You can use either one of those. To be unwise is to be foolish. In fact, in verse 17, Paul does that. Look down at it. Therefore, do not be foolish. Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So he's telling us to not be foolish. Not to be unwise. What in the world does it mean to be foolish or to be unwise? 
Well, Paul is pulling some Old Testament imagery for us, particularly from the Proverbs to help us understand what he's saying here. And so I want us to go back and look at a few Proverbs that describe what an unwise person is like, that describes what a fool is like, to see what Paul is trying to help us see. And as we look at each of these Proverbs, I want you to see if you can make the connection to something Paul has already told us in Ephesians. So let's look at the Proverbs and see if we can find a connection to Ephesians. They'll be on the screen for you. First, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22. What is a fool? Here's what it says in Proverbs. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? So a fool or an unwise person biblically is someone who hates knowledge. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 18. We see more. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. So an unwise or foolish person is one who slanders others, who lies to others. Proverbs chapter 12, verse number 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Now, no no mincing of words there is there. I mean, not holding back any punches. Whoever hates reproof is, according to the Bible, stupid. That's not just some modern paraphrase. That's what it says, that if you hate reproof, you're stupid. You're foolish, you know, according to the Bible's definition of fool and being unwise. A fool hates being corrected. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 16. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. So a fool is someone who doesn't turn away from evil, someone who's reckless and careless when it comes to sin and temptation around them. It's someone who's unguarded about evil and sin. Proverbs chapter 14, verse number 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. A fool is someone with a hasty temper, is easily angered, you might say. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 3. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Another mark of a lack of wisdom, another mark of being unwise or foolish is someone who quarrels. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 30. I pass by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. A fool, an unwise person is a person who's a sluggard, who does not work, who's lazy. And then finally, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit. But a wise man quietly holds it back. An unwise person, a foolish person, is someone with unrestrained speech who just always is venting whatever they're feeling or thinking. Did you notice in every one of those definitions of folly, of lack of wisdom, is something that Paul's already talked about in Ephesians? I hope you're kind of seeing that trend if you've been with us for a while. In Ephesians, Paul has told us already to grow in the knowledge of God. But we saw in Proverbs 1.22 that a fool hates knowledge. Paul's already told us that if we're new in Christ, we should be willing to correct one another and receive correction like we've seen in the last several weeks. But we already saw in Proverbs 12 that a fool hates being corrected. Paul's already told us in Ephesians to watch out for the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of sin of our own heart, deceitfulness of others trying to persuade us it's okay to sin. We already saw here in Proverbs 14 that a fool is someone who's unguarded about evil and about sin. Paul's told us to put off slander, but we already saw in Proverbs Chapter 10, that a fool slanders. We've been told in Ephesians to put off sinful anger. We saw in Proverbs, a fool is one who has sinful anger. We saw in Ephesians that we're to put off laziness. In Proverbs, it describes a fool as one who is lazy. We're told in Ephesians that we should not be quarreling. We should not be yelling. We should not have clamor. But we saw in Proverbs 20 already that a fool, an unwise person, is one who argues and quarrels and raises their voice to other people. So in light of all that, look back at verse number 15 now. 
Where are we getting obedience from in this? Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. What is an unwise person, a foolish person? is someone who ignores God's commands. An unwise person, a foolish person. It's okay to use that term. The Bible uses it. A foolish person is one who does not obey God's commands, who ignores God's commands. And friends, the reality for you and I is we as believers can act foolishly at times, can't we? You and I, even though we're children of God with a new identity, cannot walk worthy of our calling. And there's times that we do those very things that we've just seen in Proverbs or marks of folly. Why? Because we have fleshly desires. We have sinful desires that are contrary to what God says, and they lead us down paths of pursuing foolish things. We have a world around us lost in its foolishness and its folly and its lack of wisdom trying to lure us along the way. And we have a very real enemy, friends, who we'll get to in Ephesians chapter 6, because they do all he can to tempt us to look away from God's wisdom and follow the world. So an unwise person, a foolish person, is one who does not obey God's commands. That means the flip side of that, a wise person is someone who seeks God's grace to obey his commands. A wise person seeks God's grace to obey his commands. A wise person is not one who tries in his own strength. That's ultimately folly, because we can't do it in our own strength. But a wise person is one who seeks help from the Lord to obey God's commands. Now, with all that in view, I want to read verse 15 again from Ephesians 5 with a little bit of commentary added to it. I normally don't do that, but I want to use a little creative imagination here and add a little bit as we read it to try to put all this together. So look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, with a little commentary added to it. Look carefully, then, how you walk, how you live. Not as unwise, hating knowledge, lying, slandering, not wanting to be corrected, being unguarded about evil and sin around you, having a temper, quarreling, being lazy, not having restrained speech. Do not walk like that, but walk as one who is wise, who grows in the knowledge of God, who's willing to correct and receive correction, who's watching out for the deceitfulness of sin, who's putting off slander and anger and laziness and quarreling to be all that God wants them to be. Friends, that's what this verse is ultimately about, that one of the things that we're called to stop and look in our life, are we living as wise or are we living as unwise? Are we obeying God's clear commands of Scripture or are we ignoring them in our daily lives? Now, I do want to say this. It's really important, friends, for we cannot obey God in our own strength. You and I cannot manufacture, try hard enough to not be a fool and to be wise. It is God's grace gift to us. I want you to see Titus chapter 2, verses 11, 12. This is an amazing text in Titus. It tells us it's all about the grace of God, what we've just been singing about all morning. For the grace of God has appeared. Now, two things happen that come because of the grace of God appearing. There's two phrases that follow in Titus. The first is it brings salvation to all people. Regardless of your background, regardless of what your past is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what country you're from, what ethnicity you have, what race you have, your socioeconomic status. That doesn't matter. God's grace is available to you. But when God's grace appears, it does two things. It brings salvation. But notice in verse number 12, what else it does? The grace of God appears training us, because that's their connection. The grace of God appears training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Friends, it's all God's grace. You and I come to salvation in Christ because of His grace. You and I grow in godliness because of His grace. Just as you and I cannot muster up enough love for God to turn to Him, He has to turn our hearts to Him. You and I will not come to obedience in our own strength. He has to be drawing us and creating that in us. It's His grace. Salvation and godliness are both His grace. Yet somehow in the midst of all that, God still calls us to pause and to look carefully at our lives and to see, am I experiencing His grace? Do I even desire His grace? Is my heart turning to want to obey God? Though I mess up so much, does my heart long for God's grace to be changing me? 
So, friends, God calls us to examine our lives, and the first area he calls us to examine is whether or not we're obeying, whether or not his grace is helping us more and more to obey. So I'm going to give you a practical question in light of that first one. It's simply this. Has God grown us in obedience any over the past year? Has God grown us in obedience in any way in the past year? Not because we tried harder, not because we had a New Year's resolution, but because we so encountered the grace of God, because we so have embraced what He has done for us, making us new in Christ, taking out the dead and putting in life, like we saw last week, removing the darkness that we were and giving us light and changing our nature to light. Has that made a difference? Is He growing us in obedience? Is there some sin in our life this year that God has given us much grace to begin to put away, that that stronghold in our life has begun to be broken because of God's grace? Do we see God growing us in obedience this year? God calls us to pause and look and see, is there any change in our life, because there should be. That's his plan for us. And that's not the only area God calls us to examine as well. He also calls us to stop and look carefully how we use time, how we use our time. Look at verse number 16 in here. This is all coming out of verse 15. Look carefully how you walk, how you live. Now the phrase in verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now we come to the word time. You've heard me say before, English is not as specific as Greek. The New Testament is written in Greek. In the Greek language, there was two different words for time, and they had different meanings. One was chronos, where we get chronology from. That's general, general time, a period of time. How, this would, but that's not what she used here. There's a second word for time, that's the word kairos, and that's moments, momentary time, moment by moment. That's what is used here. Paul doesn't say, look carefully how you generally use your time. He says, look carefully then, are you making the best use of the moment by moment by moment by moment by moment by moment by moment? He's looking at what we do on an ongoing basis with every decision we face. God is calling us how to, calling us to examine our lives to see how we use each moment of every day. And he tells us we're to use it well. We're to make the most of it. Literally, the word that we translate to use the most or to make the most of is the word to redeem, to buy back. So literally, what he tells us here is we need to redeem every moment by moment by moment by moment of the day. Why does he use the word redeem here for us? Why does he tell us to look and see if we're redeeming? To redeem means to buy something back. You sell something to a pawn shop, you go back because you change your mind, you redeem it. You buy back, you buy it back. To buy something back means the default is we don't have it anymore. And so that means the default, if we're to buy back at the time, is that we don't use it wisely. We don't use it well. So we have to be intentional to go redeem it. Friends, if we're not intentional with our time, we will use our time the way the world does. What does the world do with their time that it describes here as these evil days? Two things with their time. Apart from Christ, apart from God's grace, our default human tendency, if we don't redeem the time, is to first of all use it for selfish gain. We use our time for selfish things, seeking wealth, seeking fame, seeking possessions, seeking comfort, seeking pleasure, seeking security, any number of things that's all about us. The default human nature is I'm going to use my time to advance me, number one, self. And all those things. And friends, we don't have to look at the news long to see that happening over and over and over. Politicians, political figures, leaders, uh, celebrities, musicians. We just go down the list as you look through the news and every different section of the news are people who are using time for selfish gain. Friends, they may be hard workers. You can be incredibly hardworking and be selfish. You can be incredibly efficient with your time and be selfish. You can be incredibly successful with your how you use time and it'd be very selfish. You can achieve a lot and it'd be very selfish because we're in it for ourselves. The second way that if we're not intentional with our time, what we do with it is we waste it. We're lazy and we waste it. Spending hours of our day not seeking to do anything to accomplish anything. 
Because if you look at the stats of American culture and how much time we stare aimlessly at screens, TV screens, our phones, whatever else, we waste so much time not seeking to accomplish anything, but rather just to sit there and waste the time. The default, if we do not redeem the time, is we'll either pursue it selfishly or we will be lazy and we will waste it. And so we're called to stop and look at how am I using time? Am I redeeming it? Am I buying it back? And if I'm buying it back, what am I buying it back to do? Well, two things. We're redeeming it to know God. That's what chapters 1 through 3 is about. We redeem time when we use it to learn more about God, to know Him, to pray, to read His Word, to be in Christian community, to grow in our knowledge of God. That's what chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians were all about. We also redeem the time, secondly, when we use it to serve others. If you think about all the commands of the second half of the book of Ephesians 4 and 5, it's all been about not advancing self, but how our speech builds up others, how we can use what we have generously to help one another. And so we redeem the time when we're not lazy and not using it for selfish gain, but when we know God and use it to serve others. And so what we have here is an invitation from the Lord. Look carefully then how you live, making the best use of time, because these days are evil. And so the question for us to realize is, if time is a gift from God, and it is because we're not promised tomorrow, if this moment is a gift from God, how do I redeem this moment? How do I buy back this moment that God has entrusted to me as a stewardship? Am I redeeming the moments God gives me or am I wasting them? As I was studying this week, I came across a really sobering but helpful question. And one of the authors I was reading said, if you want to grow in understanding what it means to redeem the time, ask yourself this, what do you do when you have nothing to do? What do you do when you have nothing to do? What is your default? If you're like, good, I have nothing to do right now, do we redeem that time? Do we seize that time to know God, to serve others, even to rest so that we can have the energy to know God and serve others? Or do we waste it for self or lazily? What do we do when we have nothing else to do? Friends, God calls us here to examine our lives, to see, is God's grace changing me in how I obey? Is God's grace changing me in how I use my time? But one last thing here in verse 17, we need to look at our lives to see, is God's grace changing me in how I seek God's will? And how I seek God's will. Do we see God growing us? Is our new identity in Christ changing my understanding of how I seek the will of God? Look at verse 17. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but, here's the put on, here's the other command for us. Understand what the will of the Lord is. To understand, to think about, but not just to know, but to have knowledge that you can apply. And what's the knowledge you should be applying? It's the will of the Lord. It's God's will. When you see God's will talked about in Scripture, there can be two aspects of it. And I think both are included in this particular text. The first thing is what we call God's revealed will, what Scripture tells to us, what we have Genesis to Revelation of what God has put in writing for us of His revealed will. It's Scripture telling us what to do. So when we're supposed to understand the will of God, this is a call for us to make sure we're taking time to know what God has clearly revealed to us about things. So, for example, I'm going to show you 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. This is one of many examples we could look at. For this is the will of God. Okay, great. We keep hearing people say, I want to know God's will for my life. I want to know God's will for my life. Okay, here it is. This is the will of God, your sanctification. What does God want for you? He wants you as a child of God to be more and more holy, day by day, moment by moment, to be sanctified, to grow in godliness. What does that include? He says that you abstain from sexual immorality. That is one part of God's clear, revealed will for you. Friends, you never have to pause and pray, does God want me to have that affair? No, he's revealed it to us. Oh, I don't know, Lord, shall I look at pornography or not? No, God's revealed it to you. There's things you don't have to pray about, friends, because God's already told you what his will is there for you. You don't have to spend time 
thinking about that, it's, he's made it very clear too. That's what all of Ephesians has been about, hasn't it, in chapters 4 and 5. I wonder if I should slander that person. No, you don't have to pray about it. He's already told you not to slander. I wonder if I should yell at my kids. No, he said, put away all, you know, on and on we could go. God has very clearly revealed his plan for us. That's his revealed will. We don't even have to say, Lord, should I do this or not? He's told us, friends. And this is where our culture has gone so far astray in so many ways in churches today. People say, well, I know God's word says this, but God wants me to be happier. I know God's word says this, but it's okay in my situation. Friends, God's real will is laid out for us, and he will never change his mind. And so we're being called here to look carefully at our lives to see, are we seeking to understand the revealed will of God? But there's a second aspect of God's will here that's also included. That's what we call a specific leading for our lives, a specific leading. What do we do in particular situations when there may be two right and good paths before us? What does God want me to do? How does he want me to use my time? That's a specific leading. We're called here to understand God's specific leading for us as well. James chapter 1 verse 5 gives us a little bit of insight into that. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, here it is, how do I live in this situation? And particularly here, let me say, the verses before verse 5 in James 1 are all about trials. So particularly in view here is, if you're lacking wisdom how to live for God in a trial. So remember, God's will may involve suffering for us. God's will may involve trials for us. God's not promising us an easy life here. If any of us lacks wisdom, but particularly in when we're in tough situations, trials, temptations, what do we do? Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, without finding fault, and it will be given to him. God has promised us that if we will seek to understand his will of what to do in specific situations, particularly when we're in trials and suffering and not sure what to do, he will give us the wisdom we need, the knowledge we need to handle that situation. Friends, God's revealed will in Scripture and his specific will for us are really two sides of one coin. God's never going to contradict himself. The way we best understand his will for me in whatever situation I'm facing and his will for you in whatever situation you're facing is to know the word of God. Because God primarily will take Scripture his inspired scripture, and we'll use his Holy Spirit to to breathe life into that and to illuminate our minds to it and to remind us of truth. So when we find ourselves in a moment-by-moment use of time, not sure what to do, we say, God, help. What do I do next? I need wisdom. What's the wisdom he gives? He points us back to his word, and he shows us how to apply his word to that situation. We've seen it before, but Romans chapter 12, verse 2, gives us a glimpse of how these work together. We're told, do not be conformed to the world, but instead be transformed, to be changed, what? By the renewing of your mind. How are our minds renewed? Our minds are renewed as we go back to the Word of God. So we're to renew our minds with the Word of God. Then what happens? By testing, you may discern, you may understand fully what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, if we want to understand God's will for our lives, we go back to the Word of God so it renews our minds. So back in Ephesians Chapter 5, we're told in verse 17, understand what the will of the Lord is. Look carefully how you live. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Friends, we have an invitation from the Lord to look at our lives. Do we see evidence of God's grace growing us in understanding his will? Do we see evidence of God's grace changing us to where our longing for his word is growing, our understanding of his word is growing, our ability to apply his word to every moment-by-moment situation we face is growing? So with that, I want to give us two practical questions as well here. Friends, first, does the amount of time we spend reading Scripture indicate we really want to know God's will? Does the amount of time we spend reading Scripture indicate we really want to know the will of God? 
But my years as a pastor, so often one of the number one questions I get from people is, I wish I knew God's will for me. Usually what they mean is, who am I supposed to marry? What school am I supposed to go to? Should I take that job? What neighborhood should I move into? Things like that. But the reality is, friends, we get hung up on all that when we're ignoring God's revealed will for so many other things. For instance, the amount of time we spend looking at Scripture indicate we really do care about and want to know the will of God. And if we want a more practical question of that, am I spending any more time now in God's Word than I was five years ago? Because, friends, if we understand our identity in Christ and all that God has done for us and that God calls us to know Him and He reveals Himself in His Word, why would we not want to spend more time with the one who's invited us to be seated at his table. So he calls us to pause from our busyness of our life and look carefully then how we live. Are we seeking in Scripture to understand the will of the Lord? Friend, God calls us to examine our lives, to see how his grace changes us, how it changes our obedience, how it changes our t- use of time, how it changes us seeking his will. But I want to be very clear here, and this the most important phrase in that whole idea is, it's his grace that changes us, friends. This, is, again, is not something you and I can do. Friends, I hope we understand fully that our standing before God is not based on how well we obey, is not based on how well we use our time, is not based on how well we understand God's will. Our standing before Him is not based on any of those things. When we stand before God at judgment one day, he's, we're not going to be able to say to Him, God, look, I obeyed so well and I used my time so well and I did really outstanding understanding your will. No. For instance, the Scripture is so clear. Our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God because he's so holy. Friends, God does not love you or I anymore whether or not we use our time better or worse. His love for us is based completely on what Christ did for us, not on anything you or I do. Because friends, realize this. When Christ died, all of our sin got put on him. If, we're, if we believe in Christ, if we really believed and we see God's grace changing us, when Christ died, all of our sin got put on him. But the second part of it that we forget so often, you've heard me say before, is all of Christ's righteousness got put on us. Everything righteous Christ did got put and credited to our account. So realize this, when the Father looks at you and to me, he sees perfect obedience. Not because he's seeing us, because he's seeing Christ's perfect obedience. If we're in Christ, when the Father looks at us, he sees perfect use of time. Not because we're using our time perfectly, but because Christ did, and he's seeing Christ's righteousness covering us. He's seeing Christ who was never in a hurry, who was never wasting time, who was always on mission, who was always serving, he sees that. And when he looks at us, he doesn't see us not seeking his will like we should. He sees Christ, righteousness, perfectly seeking the will of the Father. Friends, when we trust in Christ, not only was all of our sin for all of our disobedience, all of our wasted time, all of our lack of desire for God's will, not only was all that put on Christ and taken care of, all of Christ's perfect righteousness of his obedience and how he used his time and how he sought the will of the Father all got credited to us. That is how God sees us now, friends. We don't obey God to, because we want to get to him. We don't use our time wisely because we're trying to somehow gain more favor from God. He already sees Christ covering us. In light of that, we go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 that we saw a while back. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, this is important, to walk, to live, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is that calling? That calling is that Christ has already forgiven us for all of our disobedience, for all of our wasted time, for all of our selfish use of time, for all of our seeking our will, not God's will. He's already forgiven us for all that, and all of his righteousness was covering us. And now it's saying, I want you to walk worthy. And if you remember from when we looked at that verse, that means to keep it in balance. It's 
the Greek word axios, a scale. Here is how God sees you. Now, by God's grace, start living it out. Friends, God calls us, God invites us to pause from all the distractions, the busyness that we do, and to take a close look at our lives. Is his grace changing us? Are we beginning more and more because of him working in us to begin to walk worthy in the way he already sees us? Are we more and more by his grace using our time more wisely because we're walking worthy of what he's already sees us as doing? Are we more and more by his grace seeking his will because he's already sees Christ over us? And so friends, I want to ask you this morning, First of all, is there evidence you're a child of God? Friends, if we're a child of God, it's not because we prayed a prayer, we walked an aisle, we got baptized, we joined the church, and we served. We're a child of God because we believe we're sinners in need of a Savior, and we trusted in Christ, not just to be our Savior, but to be our Lord, to forgive us of all of our sin, to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness, because we want to submit to Him as our boss, as our master. Friends, if there's no change, there's really no belief. Friends, if there's no sign of God's grace in your life. This morning, I want to challenge you to not put your confidence in salvation and going to heaven based on what you did in the past, but to cry out to him to begin to change you now. And friends, the reality is all of us fall short. None of us walk worthy like Ephesians 4.1 tells us. We need a lot of grace and we need a lot more grace. And we'll need a lot of grace till the day we see Jesus face to face because we're going to keep struggling with our sin nature. Friends, is there in your life that there's evidence of God's grace, whether it's an obedience to a particular command and how we use our time, wasting it, or selfishly, perhaps in some area we're not really seeking God's word to understand his will. Is there some area that God has been convicting you in and disciplining you about? Because if we're a child of God, he loves us so much, he doesn't leave us where we are. We've already saw this a few weeks ago. Love doesn't let someone continue down a dangerous path without warning them. And God and his love for his children, when he sees us going down paths of disobedience that will bring harm to us and others, when he sees us wasting our time, when he sees us being selfish, when he sees us not seeking after him, he loves us too much to leave us where we are. So he pursues us. Friends, this morning, is there some of you who perhaps you've seen God pursuing you, felt God convicting you and disciplining you, and you need to stop running from him, but run to him and submit to him and say, Lord, yes, please, help me look carefully at how I walk, how I live. Help me choose obedience. Help me be wise. Help me make the best use of time. Help me to understand your will. I'd encourage you this morning as we sing to give that to the Lord and ask him for help. But perhaps for some of you in this room, today is a day of celebration for you because when you think about God growing you in obedience, there is some sin that he's broken in your life this year and you are rejoicing that that stronghold is gone. Perhaps he's grown you in some way to where you used to be so selfish and so lazy with your time, and you've seen God growing you, and you're so excited because you see God pursuing you in that. Perhaps this year has been a year you've been in his word more, and it's just coming alive to you. Friends, if that's you this morning, as you sing to the Lord, thank him, because that's his grace. So all of us are somewhere on this journey. We all are in desperate need of grace this morning. And our challenge for us this morning, whether it's while we're singing now or sometime this week, to take a few minutes to stop and say, Holy Spirit, search me. Help me examine my own heart. Show me, are there areas in my life I am not walking worthy of my calling? And would you, God, give me grace to change? Would you pray with me? Father God, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for your word when it encourages us. God, we're thankful for your word when it disciplines us and corrects us. We're thankful, God, that you love us so much that you don't leave us where we are. But God, you keep bringing us along, that you keep sanctifying us, Lord, to realize that in your love for us, you not only gave us much grace, as we saw in Titus 2, to come to salvation, God, you give us much grace to grow in godliness. And so, Lord, for myself and for these precious brothers and sisters, God, I pray for much grace. 
not just for right now, not just for today, but God, all this week. God, grace to see our lives the way you do. Lord, we know that can be really uncomfortable because God, you are so holy and you are so perfect and you are so infinite and you are so wise. It's your character, it's your nature. And Lord, for us to see ourselves the way you see us can be really painful and uncomfortable because we see our imperfections, we see our sin, we see our our foolishness, our folly, even in the words of Proverbs, our stupidity. But God, I'm so thankful that your love for me and your love for these brothers and sisters is not based on how wise or holy or anything we are. It's based on simply what you have done and your character and your forgiveness for our sins. Lord, to realize that right now that if for all of us in Christ, for myself and these brothers and sisters, that when you see us, you see Christ's righteousness. You are not looking at how we wasted time last week. You are not looking at our sins of last week. You are not looking, God, at us not pursuing your will like we should. You look at us and you can smile because you see Christ. In the words of Zephaniah 3, you can rejoice over us with singing. Twice that even that we blow it so much, Lord, that you can still sing over us because we're your children because of what you have done, because you have adopted us and you have seated us at your table. God, I pray this week we would treasure that, that there's nothing we can do to make you love us more. God, there's nothing that we can do this week that will make you love us any less. But God, I pray that that truth wouldn't lead us to complacency and wouldn't lead us to passivity and just to sit by, but rather it would, in Ephesians 4, 1, it would help us desire to walk worthy to begin to experience, Lord, walking how you already see us. Lord, we can't manufacture that, but God, you can give us grace. So this morning for myself and these brothers and sisters, would you give us much grace to see ourselves the way you see us and much grace to want to grow in godliness, to want to pursue holiness more, to want to use our time better to know you and to serve us, to want to seek your will and to grow in hunger for God, would you stir those things in us? so that we can find the joy that you are offering to us, a life full of the abundant life of knowing you and being in your presence. God, as that happens, we know we will find joy that is far beyond any joy you've ever experienced. And God, you will receive great glory. So Lord, for the good of your name and your fame and for the joy that we so need in our hearts, would you now in this week begin to pursue us in new ways, to begin to convict us in new ways, to begin to grow us in new ways that we might be able to, by your strength alone, Walk worthy of the calling you've given to us. And we give you all the praise we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?